Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, see the world from a woman's point of view. And a very good day to you, Mzansi. Welcome to Otherwise Talking Women on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala, and on the team today is Hazel Makuzeni, Bushoka Maklosa, and Wandile Makasana is our technical producer for today. Our contact details are 0891-104207, email otherwise at safm.co.za, tweets at SAFM Radio, or at Shadow Twala. Now, Catherine Joint is a PhD candidate in sociology at WITS. She talks to us about women, poverty, and food prices. We ask attorney and social activist Mushimi Chetty why women in South Africa earn 33% less than men doing the same jobs. And finally, we hear about a Facebook mall run by mothers from Naomi Butoa, founder of Mummy Mall. But first... Chew on these wise words. The Lunch Bite on SAFM. Now, it's taken from Bell Hooks, who's the author of Feminism is for Everybody. And she says males as a group have and do benefit the most from patriarchy, from the assumption that they are superior to females and should rule over us. But those benefits have come with a price. In return for all the goodies men receive from patriarchy, they're required to dominate women, to exploit and oppress us using violence, if they must, to keep patriarchy intact. Most men find it difficult to be patriarchs. Most men are disturbed by hatred and fear of women, even the men who perpetuate this violence. But they fear letting go of the benefits. They are not certain about what will happen to the world they know most intimate if patriarchy changes. So they find it easier to passively support male domination, even when they know in their minds and hearts that it is wrong. That's Bell Hooks. Chew on these wise words. The Lunch Bite on SAFM. Well, it is Women's Month, and it was shocking for me to find an article that says, despite the current hype about Women's Month, no one is more likely to be hungry than the women of this country. Women tend to be up to 30% poorer than men, while women-headed households are between 38% and more than 100% poorer than households headed by men, according to the 2008 National Income Dynamics Study, uh, which I found on, online. And joining me now in the studio, Catherine Joint, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me today. Now, how shocking is this? It is shocking, and it is very widespread. Can you just paint a picture for us? I mean, I, when I saw women, poverty, and food prices, mm-hmm. I thought, how do the three even come together? Sure. Well, women um, play a very, very important role on a number of um, points in the food system. Mm. So one of them is on the side of consumption. So that's women in the household. Mm. And in this sphere, it's mostly women who take on the role of um, preparing foods, of buying food for the household, and that includes all family members. Mm. Um, and of also of taking care of sick people in the household mm-hmm. and a number of other um, reproductive spheres in the household. And then on the side of production, women are also playing a very important role, and that's both in the economy, um, the formal side of the economy, mm-hmm. and in the household. So what you often find in poor households is that women take on roles of um, growing vegetables to mm. supplement family diets. Women um, start sewing a lot more and taking on that kind of labor to save income or they start making dumplings to save income, for mm. example. And then in the formal side of the economy, women are very much connected into the food system. So you have a lot of female workers um, throughout the food chain and that's all the way from farm 
to retail. So, mm-hmm. And retail especially is um, dominated by women in work. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when you go and buy your food at any supermarket, uh, there's, there's a woman there. Yes, absolutely. Meaning that they're almost mostly employed on the shop floor. Right. And one would think that they would fare better than men. Right, so a lot of um, women actually um, in retail are under very precarious working conditions. Um, of course, that also extends to farm workers. But in retail, women are often outsourced, temporary, casual, mm. and so aren't in very strong positions in mm. that particular sector, but play a very important role in that sector. Wow. When, when you say they, they're not in strong positions, is that, is that because they're not on permanent work? Yeah. Um, and there's so many of them, really, that are looking for those type of jobs that uh, no one bats an eyelid. Right. So a lot of the time, women, um, they aren't in very, um, very, uh, we could say, secure working mm. conditions, mm. Or secure contracts, mm. um, which is highly problematic because these are ultimately people who are buying food for their families and are consumers themselves. And what a lot of the big retailers will tell you is that. Um, we need a competitive um, working environment and competitive employment scheme in order to bring cheaper goods to mm. the consumers. So what that essentially means is this type of system where people are competing on a very um, sort of lowest common denominator basis and wages are quite low. But when you really interrogate what's happening, you find that the profits are quite high. So you have to start questioning where um, the cut in that particular node of the food chain is going um, and to what extent is it actually workers who are bringing down um, a lot of the um, or causing a lot of the problems in the system. Let's talk about food prices for a Mm. bit because I think that's also where we get hurt most. Um, who makes decisions and and what collusion we heard about the bread prices not so long ago Um, the the third party and how big that third party is and what their responsibility is towards making sure that South African families are fed because that's what it it means eventually Right, so on food prices there are a number of reasons why food prices are increasing and they have been increasing for many years and it's quite large increases over the years and one which you've just mentioned is um, around unfair profiteering in the mm-hmm. food system. Mm-hmm. And this has happened um, in bread. So the Competition Commission busted and caught the bakeries and millers for um, price fixing. But it's also happened in maize, it's happened in milk, it's happened in fish. There's currently an milk. investigation. Yes, milk too. Um, there's an investigation currently into the retail chain, which is dominated by four big retailers. And um, it's hugely problematic because... A lot of these foods are staple foods mm. for the poor. Mm. Um, so the moral side of it is very problematic. But it's also ultimately, unfortunately, you know, of course, the Competition Commission is doing, playing a very important role in catching and finding these corporates. But it can't, it's not a preventative role. It's mm. more of a prescriptive, you know, after it's happened. It doesn't address the broader structural conditions that are allowing us to have such strong monopolies in the food industry in the first place. Because you, you spoke earlier about women starting their own little food gardens yes. and some of them really starting a, a co-ops, if you like, mm-hmm. growing food. But there's also the problem of where do they buy the seeds? Are seeds readily available for them uh, to, to, to sustain themselves? 
Yes, so the seed system is also um, quite problematic. We have um, very well, three big companies controlling the seed system. And a lot of small communities are pushed to use seeds from these companies. And some of these seeds, for example, from Monsanto, have particular problems with um, reproducing for the next generation. So you get tied into a relationship of continually having to buy that seed, mm-hmm. apart from some of the health consequences associated with herbicides used for those seeds. Sure. But it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of alternatives. So, um, for example, there's a South African food sovereignty campaign, which is bringing together a whole range of small organizations, community organizations, mostly grassroots organizations and labor as well, um, under this umbrella, which both challenges the current food system, which is causing huge amounts of hunger Mm -hmm. in this country, but also looks at alternatives and people learning from alternatives. So there are a lot of communities where there are seed-saving initiatives and people are actually saving um, traditional seeds for themselves that they can use uh, continually. There are a lot of agroecological farming um, projects and so on in communities. And like you said, mentioned the cooperatives. So you mm. get bakery cooperatives, for example, Swelelani Bakery Cooperative in Ivory Park. And there are a number of food cooperatives in South Africa, um, both rural and urban. So this um, campaign is trying to bring together these alternatives to say that actually there is another way, that mm, it isn't mm. all doom and gloom. But how's the work of this, uh, of this campaign? I mean, how far does it reach and how does one become part of it and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and support it and also be, be part of it to benefit from it? Right, so if people are interested in getting involved in the campaign, it's currently we've um, done some stretches on food prices, but also looking then at land and issues around seed, mm-hmm. and we'll go on to look at all different aspects of the food chain. Um, and people can join, anybody who's interested can join the campaign, because part, there are different legs. Obviously, awareness is a very important mm-hmm. part, and mm-hmm. we welcome anybody who can help with any type of um, awareness and um People who are willing, want to learn from different initiatives are also welcome um, to come and find out what is happening in other communities and how people are um, doing or organizing these projects and alternatives. Um, we are on Facebook under um, SA Food Sovereignty Campaign. Mm-hmm. And they can also contact uh, Mandler. Mm-hmm. Um, his email is Mandler at eset, E-S-S-E-T, dot org dot z-a, mm-hmm. and his number is 079-095-3493, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and we welcome all people to get involved. So it's taking off at the moment, we're in the initial stages, but it should build, and there are a huge range of organizations that are connected to the campaign. I just wonder, though, why aren't we angry enough? Why haven't we protested against this? I mean, mm. this, is, this is unacceptable. And it's, it's kind of qu- quietly we're getting on with our lives as if uh, everything is running at normal. No, you're absolutely right. It is unacceptable. Um, the latest Oxfam report reported that half of South Africans either or people in South Africa are either at risk of going hungry or are going to hungry, going to bed hungry every single night. Half of South Africa. So, yeah. so intermittently hungry and then a quarter go to bed hungry every single night. So that's an extremely large proportion of the population. And unfortunately, these stories and the research that's being done doesn't get um, very much media attention. So often when you pick up a newspaper or switch on the TV, 
you'll hear about people complaining about workers damaging the economy, for example, mm, or mm. various stories that um, or perspectives that relate to this, but are just one side of the coin and don't look at issues around corporate profit and control um, and other issues, structural issues related to this food system and don't talk about alternatives and don't actually talk about the levels of hunger that people are experiencing. I mean, for example, children, almost a third of children in this country are stunted from malnutrition. And, <laughs> and that is a phys- uh, both physical and mental stunting. And it's a massive, massive problem. And it is mostly poor working class women and children who are bearing the brunt of this food crisis. So what do we do with this kind of information that you've given us, especially the research from Oxfam? Mm-hmm. How do we receive it? What we, I suppose it's because it's just numbers yes. and statistics, and we find they, there's no um, call to action of any kind. And, and I think each and every South African right now from today ought to be responding mm-hmm. to that research. But how do we respond to it? Well, I mean, to bring it back to the campaign, it is one of the only projects that I know that is really trying to organize people to create this type of awareness around the system, around the levels of hunger. And it's it's not easy because, for example, we held a hunger tribunal um, at the Constitutional Court, and um, it wasn't very well attended by media at all, but there were farm workers, there were retail workers, there were students who go hungry in rural areas. And there were a huge range of people who attended and people who are running these seed saving systems or agroecology projects, um, people who are hungry and people who are involved in their alternatives. And then also a number of researchers coming with broader research about the economic consequences, about issues around climate change, which mm-hmm. is massive because our food prices are set to rise in future because of the consequences of climate change. So it was a very, very important moment and very powerful testimonies given by people, very, very powerful. Um, but unfortunately, there was quite low media presence. But that being said, I think that the awareness is building and that especially at the grassroots level in these communities, people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these successful initiatives are becoming more well-known and people are looking to these alternatives. Well, Catherine, I'm going to I'm going to invite you to uh, keep us posted yes. when you have these these uh, cases that happen, and and just to give us progress, especially on the campaign as well. And we will stay in touch with Mandla. I'll give out his number again and his email address, and hopefully we can get some kind of movement towards the campaign and responding to the campaign. Absolutely, thank you very much. But I thank you for your time and your work. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's Catherine Joint, a PhD candidate in sociology at Wirtz University. When we come back, uh, we talk about the gender gap as well. 33% uh, less than men is what we earn as women. How fair is that after this? Some things come naturally to SAFM, SAFM. like being SA's news and information leader. Information. SAFM, 104 to 107. Noshimi Chetty is an attorney and social activist. She joins me on the line right now. Hello, Moshimi. Hi, Shadow. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for, for taking time to talk to us. It's only a pleasure. Now, you've, you've got such an interesting life. I, I want to talk about the gender gap, but I also want to talk to you about yourself because you do so many other things. But one thing I enjoyed reading about was the fact that you packed your bags and cycled uh, with a group of German friends to India. Tell us about that. Yes, 
That's true. Um, it was in 2012. Mm-hmm. I was working as a lawyer for a German NGO at the time um, that did some very interesting uh, human rights work, very far left work. Um, but I found that I was working on an Indian matter and um, a Zimbabwean matter, but I was so far away from both of these countries and the actual real-life impact on the ground that I felt rather disconnected and a bit disillusioned. Mm. So I had the opportunity to assist in raising funds through the cycle tour to build sanitation facilities in a group of villages. Um, and it seemed like a crazy idea at the time. You know, obviously with hindsight, everything worked out quite well. <laughs> Um, but yes, I, I decided to join the cycle tour in order to raise funds and awareness uh, for this lack of sanitation issues. Um, fantastic experience, and if anyone has the chance to do something completely outside of their comfort zone, I would encourage them highly. But how did that inform the way you do business today and whatever you do uh, in your world of business? Uh, did you learn any anything that you can share with us? I really learned so much. Um, I think what I've noticed about South Africans, I don't know if it's as a result of um, education or whatever apartheid has done to us. Um, as non-white South Africans, I often find a lot of people have fantastic ideas but don't know how to implement them mm-hmm. or first and foremost think about all the difficulties that they'll face. So if someone says, you know, I want to start this tech app which does, you know, whatever they'll immediately think, oh, but I don't have startup capital, or, you know, there are other players in the field, and I don't know where to start, and it all fizzles out. And I think I was very much the same. I I often said, and I I did an interview for um, the Oprah magazine, and I said, I thought I was an ideas person, and I needed to partner with an action person. Mm. But the process of this very crazy idea of cycling to India to raise funds for an untested sanitation solution um, the, just the process that we went through in putting that together. A simple thing like getting our bikes. We wanted a bike sponsor. We just formed a list of 150 or so bike shops mm-hmm. from small to large in Berlin. Wrote a letter to all of them and told them what we would do. Mm-hmm. And one out of that 150 offered to sponsor us our bikes. Um, the me- method in which we found NGOs who were willing to endorse us and support us. Just that simple if you ask, you'll get. Just the simple um, how you pull a big project together in little incremental pieces. I think I, I've been disavowed of that feeling that I'm an ideas person, not a doing person. So it really and truly has informed everything I do. Um, when you do something so big and so what to the outside seems insane, you kind of have an invincibility that develops in you. And no one, and you yourself and no one else can tell you that you can't achieve something that you set your mind to. But it really takes doing that first insane thing, um, whether it's starting a business or cycling to India, in order to break you of, of that limiting sort of mindset. Mushemi, and, 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 you know, I suppose when you're working with people, like-minded people, it, it helps you a bit. But when you really want to form those partnerships and somebody else or all the people around you are also going no we can't do that too big no you know we won't you know we need something else excuses 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 how do you break away from that mold and really be the leader of the pack and do what you did i i can't say per se that i was the leader of the pack 
or the, the protagonist of the cycle to it, was really um, an entrepreneur named Thomas Yuckel, um, who's an entrepreneur in Berlin. And the only thing I think you can do is to be that person for someone else. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a blog post a while ago about why we need, why we need more yes people which sounds like a strange thing to say because the the term yes person has negative connotations of being someone who just says yes to Mm. everything. Mm. But I truly believe that often, and I've seen this especially with women, the best thing that happened to me in my life was my ability to say yes to an opportunity that I wasn't quite sure I could actually do in Mm. my heart of hearts. The one being the cycle tour and the second being when my current business partner said to me, do you want to get back into commercial law? Do you mm. want to start something with me? And the ability to actually say yes when someone offers you something that you don't think you're good enough for. Because you need to prove... a lot of guts. You need to prove yourself. You need to prove it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why I think sometimes if you've, if you've been broken of that, if you've been disavowed of that feeling, then you need to run around offering other people insane opportunities and saying just jump on board and that's what I like to do now um, sometimes you you have a great deal of difficulty convincing people that they're good enough so it's something that I think a lot of women suffer from it's called the imposter syndrome no matter how good your CV or you know intellectually you know I've worked for 10 years um, you know I've got a master's degree or whatever the case may be I have X, Y and Z experience mm-hmm. when someone says to you come sit on my board as a non-exec director, immediately we have those feelings of a lack of self-worth mm. or questioning whether I'm right for that position. Mm. Um, so an interesting thing is that I was trying to, to start a speaker's bureau or, or some sort of PR in the speaker's industry. And I approached a number of my friends who have absolutely the right skills. I mean, masters in, in marketing with an interest in branding, and they were in between jobs. And they just thought it was just too much and too scary and too much of a risk when I said I've got a business plan for you Hmm. and I've got um, you know I'll set the business up but when I dropped the bar and I went out looking for interns and offered to pay them you know a stipend the response was overwhelming stay on the line for me please we'll we'll continue the conversation after news headlines with Ocelia Sarko Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, see the world from a woman's point of view. Getting inspiration from Mashemi Chetty. You, 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 were, you, you were talking to us about when you dropped the bar, Mashemi? Um, yes, I was saying that when you offer people an opportunity that's actually commiserate to what they're capable of, often, particularly women, we fear that we're not good enough. And when I drop the bar and make it an internship, then you have an overwhelming number of applicants. So this is one of the things that we need to overcome um, as women within these spaces, the fear that we're, we're not quite good enough, whereas in fact we are. Well, it brings us back to what I initially wanted to talk to you about, and I'm, I'm glad we, we got there eventually. How do we change the status quo now? We, we hear that women earn far less than men in South Africa, even when we do the same jobs. Why are we accepting that as women in the first place? Do we find we're not strong enough to negotiate? Uh, I suppose we think we may lose the opportunity in the first place. Um, Absolutely, those are some of the reasons. Um, Just to make it clearer for uh, some of the listeners, the global um, 
wage gap in 2013 survey by the International Trade Union um, and Incomes Data Services was 22.4% gap between men and women for similar jobs. In South Africa, that was 33.5%. Mm. And recent statistics tell us that it's closer to 35%. Mm. So to put that in perspective, it would take women a full year to earn what men earn in eight months. Sure. It's really quite a shocking um, piece of data. Um, and the reason is really as a result, globally, we know that it's a phenomenon that exists, that it's much worse in South Africa. And that's as a direct result of our past, of course. Um, globally, it's a, as a result of the past being that women were not traditionally in the workplace. Mm. And when they did enter the workplace, you know, past um, the Second World War, it was usually into very low-skilled positions, clerical and admin positions, and that has unfortunately continued till today. There's a, a stark distinction between the amount of skilled women in the workplace versus skilled men. And in fact, uh, the Commission for Gender Equity um, has shown that there's actually been a drop in the skilled women in the workplace in South Africa. And as I said, due to apartheid, that's, that's even severely, more severely compounded. Um, the value of a black woman's work versus a white male's work um, has been, you know, it's, it's, it's much, um, it's valued much differently. What we do about that in terms of the solution is that we really start with trying to get companies at the top. So the senior management and the senior leadership, mm-hmm. which is largely male, of course, to buy into the idea of pushing the idea of gender mainstreaming or having more women in leadership positions and skilled positions within the workplace. And how does it affect uh, women on the opposite side of, 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 the, of the scale? In terms of women who are already sitting in those leadership positions? Yes. Well, I think that there's really a, a, a duty on women sitting in those positions to mentor and to sponsor women so that you form a pipeline of talent. So for me, really, the issue is that when it comes with its gender, with its race within the workplace, Mm. it's not that now 20 years plus um, post-independence that the skills don't exist. This is not the same as 1994 where we couldn't find black engineers or black lawyers or female engineers. Mm -hmm. The skills really exist. The problem is at the level of unconscious bias. It's not necessarily um, that a person is a misogynist or they, you know, are, they, they dislike women or that they dislike people of color. It's more that it's human nature to want to work with people who are like us. So you'll find even socially we tend to flock to people of our own social and economic background, of our own race, of our own culture. It's just human nature. But within the workplace, we need to actively unpack these processes and find ways to get people to connect as human beings and to identify talent that doesn't look like what you traditionally have seen talent is looking like. So when it comes to someone's accent or someone's schooling background or the way they dress, there are these subtle human elements that I think don't properly get addressed in terms of the hiring practices in South Africa to find out what does black talent look like? What does female talent look like? And how do we strategically and, and with a concerted effort hire that talent?
Sure. It's going to take us a few years, though, because it looks like a huge project that everybody needs to buy into. It will do. Um, statistics at the moment say that if we had to leave it organically, the wage gap would only close in 50, in 50 years in South mm. Africa, if at mm. all. Mm. Um, there is um, some new legislation or amendments to the employment equity legislation, the Code of Good Practice, on the equal pay for equal work principle. And that's, I guess, where my interest in, in gender and my legal background sort of dovetail, mm-hmm. is that this piece of legislation or the Code of Good Practice makes it a requirement for all employers who fall within the ambit of the Employment Equity Act. So if you have 50-plus employees, um, that you must now report additionally on the levels of pay amongst genders, uh, amongst gender and race. So it's a very exciting piece of legislation. Um, it requires that employers conduct an audit of pay levels and benefit levels and identify whether there are any large disparities and then take active steps to rectify this. Do you think that some people will just opt to not employing women eventually? You know, there certainly is that um, that sentiment or that feeling, and that's why I really feel that it requires you to get the buy-in of the people at the top, mm. to have them understand that there's a business case for diversity in your business. Mm. There's actually there's a lot of um, academic evidence, particularly coming out of the UK, which suggests that having more female representation actually makes your business more profitable. In fact, having more of a minority voice gives you more profitability because you're taking into account more factors Mm -hmm. in running your business. You're uh, drawing from a greater pool of resources. But we really need to combat this thinking that women are a drain on resources to train because they might have children. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think we really just need to address... um, the elephant in the room, which is that there's a lot of companies that do feel this way. Um, I'm a small business employer as well, but I think it's a far greater drain on your resources to have untrained personnel. Um, And also we can't assume what, in 2015, uh, a young woman's aspirations are in terms of of having children or starting a family. Mm. And also I feel very strongly that we can't continue to run businesses on a 1950 baby boomers model. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about the, the modern corporate, that's really what it's premised on. It's premised on the 1950s when women were housewives and, and men were in the workplace. At the moment, we now have the benefit of an additional you know, 50% of the population as a workforce. So we really need to think about how do we structure our companies in order to reflect who human beings are today rather than who human beings were 50 years ago. Because I think men also want to spend more time with their families and have more flexible working arrangements. And I think they're also, as a result of this sort of gender bias and gender gap, being forced into roles which they may not necessarily want. Mm. I hope we continue this conversation another time. It's been most interesting talking to you. How do people find you? Um, are you? Do you have a website? Do you have an email I address? I do. My website is www.motionec, that's M-A-U, 
S H A M I C dot com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Shadow. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye. That website again, MoshaMixC. M A U S H A M I C dot com. When we come back, talking about the Mummy Mall. Show's so good, we won't blame you if you can't pick a favorite. Can't pick a favorite. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Now, Naomi Batoa is the founder of Mummy Mall. She joins me on the phone. Naomi, hello. Okay, she, she'll she be on the phone with me in, 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 a, in a minute or so. But Mummy Mall, it's on Facebook and only moms. It's run by moms only. And hopefully, uh, all the proceeds and cent and money spent uh, at the event that they went to on August the 8th, um, it went towards bettering the future of a child in South Africa. She'll tell us about how it is, how it works, and how she gets all the mummies. Apparently, Mummy Mall Cape Town uh, boasts a membership of uh, 8,000 traders and shoppers, and a membership built in a very short time of eight months. Um, and this is just from mummies. So, uh, you know, I'll just... I'm very interested in knowing how to be part of uh, this Facebook run mall and only run by mummies. And they want to empower at least 100,000 mumpreneurs by the end of 2017 to be more successful in business and have a better stable income so as to provide better opportunities to their children and eventually then uh, uplifting society. So while we get hold of her, we'll take a, a piece of music and we'll be back uh, in a few minutes talking to uh, talking about the Mummy Mall to Naomi Butoa. Music by Ringo Mazingozi Mtandazo. Naomi is, is on the line with us. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Peshada. How are you? Fine, and you? Yeah, you should be excited about Mummy Mall. Tell me, how did the 8th of August go? It was fantastic. You know, it was the first time that we had a trading event at Riverside Club, and we had a, a very good outcome. And I think for the most of it, for the people who were there, the mothers in business, who came to be a first-time vendor, it was a very positive experience. Now, tell us, give us a background on Mummy Mall. How did it begin, and what is it exactly? Well, from reading motherhood forums on Facebook, I realized that mothers in business were quite isolated. Um, myself being a marketing specialist, I noticed that mothers would advertise on mothering forums, but then they would be kicked off for bringing in commercial chats into something that's actually not a commercial space. You mm-hmm. know, Facebook is more like a lounge. Mm-hmm. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to start a commercial page. And I called it Mommy Mall because I wanted mums to realize that this is for all mothers, all mothers in business who want to trade with each other. And it was really just a very small project of mine, which I called my project from the heart because I am a marketing strategist. In the first uh, week, we had about 30 members, and then the first month, about 100. And by the time it was February, I was sitting on 2,000 members, and it just grew exponentially. So so what does it do? Do you have to be a, a mom, a stay-at-home mom, but who has a business? That's basically it. But, um, you know, it's as Shami also said earlier on, that the definition of Mothers in business have changed so much 
over the years, we've come to believe that people who work from home are the ones who are only doing some baking or some sewing on the side, <laughs> and this is not the case. We actually have professional people going out of their businesses, having having little babies, and then starting off a freelance business, whether as a graphic designer, a financial planner, a branding specialist. So Mommy Morpa say can actually offer you anything you need in terms of services and products. Okay, so so if I run my own business at home and I need an accountant, I go to Mommy Mall to another mommy who who then I, I take services from or, you know, they use my services. You advertise to each other and work together. Correct. So that's the whole principle behind Mommy Mall is that we stand together. So I just want to go back to what Catherine said in an earlier interview. And she said, that there are many children going to bed hungry in Mm. South Africa today Mm. and that their growth is stunted as a result of that. Together with that, I would like to reiterate that two-thirds of South African children are growing up in single-parent households. Mm. Now, who's the single parent? In many cases, that single parent is the mother. Mm. Going back to what what Nishem said, Mm. 33% is... The, the gap between the income of a man and the income of a woman in the same corporate position. All right, so we are earning 33% less than men. But the question here is, who is the single parent? And in most cases, it's the mother. So mommy more is there to support mothers. Now, I, I often say this on the Facebook wall, and this is a whole community that exists on Facebook. It's, it's in social media, which mm, is quite mm. strange, you know, that it's taken up so much. But mothers are so isolated, and they're sitting behind the PC with their children at home. They're not dealing with anyone else in the whole whole day, you know. It's just themselves, their, their work, and their children. So how do we become members, Naomi? We're going to run out of time now, I see. So how do we become members? You go to um, Mommy More Cape Town, if you're in Cape Town, or Mommy More Joburg on Facebook, and you join. Or you can go to Mommy More FA. That is the main page. I'm on the other side of that inbox. So if you message me at Mommy More FA, you'll find me on the other side. And you'll be able to walk us through what we need to do and the kind of skill set we we need and, 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 and what we have, what we bring into the party. Yes, of course. You just have to be a mother in business. That's all. You join us. And we hold hands. We become the village that will raise your child. Well, I'm going to catch up with you again to find out how you're doing towards the end of the year. But thank you so much, Naomi, for talking to us. And congratulations for founding Mummy Mall. Thank you so much, Shadow. We'll chat again. You take Thanks care bye. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And you may find at Naomi at lift.co.za. Lift is an L-I-F-T. Naomi at lift.co.za. Look out for Mummy Mall South Africa on Facebook. Who knows? You may become one of the moms. Uh, on Mummy Moore. It is now time for Nalibali.